In 2021, online video games produced more than $180 billion in revenue for more than 2.8 billion users. Today's guest warns that hidden in all of that cash and among all of those users are extremists who encourage and often inspire real-world violence. She's Dr. Jessica White this week on Story in the Public Square. Hello and welcome to a Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. And I'm G. Wayne Miller with the Providence Journal. This week we're joined by Dr. Jessica White, a Senior Research Fellow in Terrorism and Conflict at the Royal United Services Institute, one of the world's preeminent security research centers, and a member of the Extremism and Gaming Research Network. She joins us today from London, England. Jessica, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me today. So, uh, the Extremism and Gaming Research Network, EGRN, what are we talking about when we're talking about extremism and gaming? Yeah, so we set up the network. We've been working to set it up over the last couple of years to look at sort of violent extreming and its nexus with online gaming. And it's basically a conglomeration of or a network of research organizations that focus on violent extremism, that research terrorism, as well as uh, you know, representation from tech companies and gamers themselves and governments and organizations that are interested in the policy issue of sort of what do we do about violent extremism and, and online gaming. It was, we're talking about online gaming, we're talking about video games? Yes, yes, but we're also talking about all of the sort of gaming adjacent platforms, the chats that go on around video games. So it's not always necessarily the conversation only about the video games themselves, but about the communities that are formed around gaming and the sort of the socialization processes that happen in those communities and how those can impact um, individuals' belief systems and, the, and potentially their radicalization processes. So who, who is playing video games today and why would extremists want their attention? And, and when I say who is playing, maybe you can give us a breakdown geographically, socioeconomically, even by gender. Just give us an overview. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think the online gaming world captures over three million people now. It's, it's a huge community. It, it is primarily tends to be younger people, sort of 16 to 24 is a dominant age range. But people of all ages play games. Older people play as well. Um, people younger than that as well. And people play games all around the world. It's a it's a basically a, a global you know a global place in which people gather. Uh, it's very predominant in North America, in Europe, uh, even you know sort of in Asia. It's a very predominant. Um, uh, thing that people partake in. So the it captures all genders, all languages, all cultures. It really is a place in, in which you get a very transnational experience and in which you are exposed then to a, a lot of people's uh, belief systems and ideas about the world. So how does extremism manifest itself in video games? And again, we could probably do the entire program 
given how many video games there are, but talk about this. Yeah, so it, it's definitely, we are not rehashing the argument of, I mean, we hold the line that video games themselves do not cause violence, rather sort of they are exploited in ways by violent extremist organizations, by networks uh, that want to, to perhaps recruit in these communities, uh, recruit new members to their ideological perspectives, or who perhaps just use it as a communications platform or even a training platform for their membership. So there are sort of a few ways in which we can think about gaming. Um, you can think about the games that are produced bespoke by violent extremist organizations. Hezbollah has a game and they use that as a training ground. Uh, some violent extremist organizations, you know, produce their own contents, but there's also a lot of people that might just go in then and modify gaming content on existing games and add in, uh, you know, violent extremist content into to games. Uh, everything, you know, most games can be utilized in this way, Roblox, Doom, The Sims, and there's a lot of games that have this content present. Uh, and then there's these gaming adjacent platforms. So platforms like Discord and Twitch, uh, Steam, these are all platforms in which many online conversations and groups are formed, and they're formed to talk about the games and the gameplay, but then of course there are wider conversations also happening in those chats. I, I, is when we're talking about extremism, uh, what you know, maybe we ought to be a little definitional about that as well. Are we talking about white supremacists? Are we talking about Islamic extremists? Who are the extremists that are that are present in these uh, in these platforms? Yeah, I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting question. The extremism question, extremism doesn't have a definition, um, but it, it's sort of everyone is present. Everyone is there. Everyone uses it uh, in different ways. Sort of you can find Islamist extremism, you can find white supremacy, you can find, well, you know, anti-government, you can find Buddhist extremism, you can find any kind of extremism that you want. And that is the, the power and the danger of online gaming is that it brings together people from everywhere and sort of there's no... Um, threshold for who joins in these, you know, chat rooms. So it, it, it exposes people to all different kinds of extremist ideas and just general hate. You know, sometimes it doesn't even have to go all the way to a violent extremist ideology. Sometimes it's just the language that people use as hateful. Um, but it also has, a, you know, a powerful ability to, to join people in a positive way. It, you know, you can have positive community engagement in these spaces. I play Mario Kart with my siblings that live halfway across the globe. Um, so there's definitely, it, it has both, you know, both abilities to be a positive and a negative force. So you, you mentioned the public chat rooms and that of course is a very important component of the gaming experience for, for many people. In these chat rooms, you will often see or hear vile, racist, sexist commentary, uh, things that are very offensive. Uh, the game makers have been aware of this for years and years, and yet they persist. Talk about where the industry stands on this and what might be done to control this or to eliminate this. You know, we've seen Facebook and Twitter ban certain people uh, for doing exactly the same thing on their platforms. But talk about the game world. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a, a tricky space. I mean, evidence shows that perhaps not as much has been done as could be done, for sure. I think that the, the gaming platforms, some of them more than others, but the gaming platforms are engaging in a conversation, you know, even with our network, and sort of what should they do, what can they do about this? 
Um, it is a tricky space legally because they are privately owned companies I and mean, the government can only go so far and, and different legislation exists across different governments and how much they can regulate the content that is left online. A content moderation is a um, even for the you know the companies that are making their best effort that have trust and safety teams that are really doing the best they can to address the issue content content moderation is basically only going to be part of the solution right the algorithms can search for certain terms they can search for concerning phrases um, but then somebody has to review that content because there is of course context to language uh, and context to these ideas so there's it's quite an intensive process uh, there is the danger of or the, the fine line of interpretation right of free speech versus you know extremists leading to violence sort of that line of First Amendment rights in the U.S. is, is a tricky one for any content moderation team to walk. Um, and there, it, it becomes even more challenging sometimes in the gaming environment because with the live streaming issue, that, that is very difficult to moderate in any way because it is a video content, because it is you know, happening in, in live, you know, live stream, then it, it becomes even more difficult to moderate in that sense. So I think it's, it's difficult to say industry-wide that there is or is not effort because it definitely varies across the gaming platforms and the gaming adjacent platforms. Um, some of them are, you know, putting in a good faith effort to do the best they can. Some of them are less concerned about moderating the content that exists on their platforms. It's definitely becoming a bigger policy concern. Governments are, are starting to wade into the conversation now about gaming social media since the Christchurch calls and since, since the attacking Christchurch. Social media has been under a stronger lens, um, but now sort of gaming is, is starting to come under that lens as well. But it, it traditionally it's been a little bit of a different space and it hasn't been so much a part of the policy conversation about content moderation until more recently. We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard multiple times every weekend on Sirius XM, Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we know how lucky we are to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can find me at J.M. Lutis. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who is an award-winning journalist with the Providence Journal and the author of 20 books. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. And our guest this week is Dr. Jessica White. A veteran of the U.S. Navy, she is now Senior Research Fellow in Terrorism and Conflict at the Royal United Services Institute in the United Kingdom. She's also a member of the Extremism and Gaming Research Network, and we're talking about that work with her right now. You can follow Jessica on Twitter at J underscore White 692. That's J underscore W-H-I-T-E 692. Have, have you studied gaming specifically during the pandemic? You know, as, as we're all well aware, there, during the pandemic, there were many people who spent way more time in front of a keyboard or a computer or playing a video game than before. Have you studied that and did that transform 
gaming in any way? Did that increase participation or solicitation by extremists? And, and again, the commentary that we're talking about, was there a change and, and what do you see now as we're hopefully coming out of, of the worst of the pandemic? Yeah, I think that the, the pandemic definitely did increase the number of gamers. I think that is fairly evident uh, as people, you know, didn't have a lot of things they could do outside the home, they turned to activities they could do inside the home. I think in general, the last several years of, of politics and global crises have ratcheted up sort of polarization in society, right? And of course that reflects within in gaming just as it does in social media and political conversation. So I think that perhaps that it indicates that there is sort of an increasing amount of extremist contents in these spaces and even just an increasing amount of, of mainstream conversation that's being pushed to the extreme and sort of allowing in more rhetoric around some of these more extreme narratives and ideologies that being specific to gaming, I, I don't think so. I think that's just, it's reflecting a wider social trends. That being said, you know, we do have members of the network that are, I mean, we have um, psychologists that have studied gaming of its own right, you know, for a very long time. And I think there's something specific in that gaming space that is different to just general social media engagements in that you are, essentially building a world within a game, right? You join a collective experience in an effort to put together a, a world building experience in, in whatever environment your game is, is replicating. And that sort of group think it, it can present unique opportunities to socialize, you know, certain attitudes or beliefs. And, and that's something that definitely needs to be studied further. That's what we don't really know yet is the extent to which this plays is, you know, a specific significant element. We don't really know the extent to which recruitment is happening on these platforms. Uh, and that's why we set up the Extremism and, Game and Gaming Research Network is to do more research and really come to some more solid conclusions on, on what the problems are, what the scale of the problems are, uh, and which can hopefully then be helpful to policymakers and to even, you know, content moderation teams at these platforms. Jessica, is there evidence about uh, which specific extremist organizations are active in the gaming space now? And are there particular either games or platforms that are especially attractive to them? There's not a lot of evidence yet to say if there are specific groups that are more active than others. You can see, you know, in certain cultural environments that expressions of extremism come across more strongly that are reflected more strongly in that society. So in the US, for example, we can see there's a lot of white supremacist content, there's a lot of misogynist content, but that reflects sort of the wider social challenges that exist in that context. In other global contexts, it would reflect more strongly the, you know, the extremisms that might be more prevalent or more on the surface of those societies. So I don't think there's good evidence yet on sort of if there are certain groups that use it more than others. As far as gaming platforms that are more dangerous, again, this is, there are platforms that, that make less effort to remove negative contents. Um, we've sort of taken the line with the, with the gaming network not to name and shame, rather to encourage sort of a positive engagement. Uh, so we want to encourage that all platforms would, you know, engage more with the research and more with trying to moderate that contents 
um, definitely it's a, it's a process and there are there are platforms that need to do more than they are for, for sure yeah well is, is there is there a financial element to this too in terms of can terrorist organizations move money inside games or on some of these platforms that's a very good question and uh, one that we are investigating now sort of the way in which perhaps cryptocurrency is trading hands in games is something that is not well researched yet either. Um, it is possible to do it, so we know that. Uh, the extent to which it's done is, is unknown at this point, but it's definitely one of the research questions that we want to look at. And it even comes down to things like the sale of gaming merchandise, even on, you know, Facebook sites or very, you know, very commonly used platforms for sort of what would seem innocuous transactions can actually be funding in some cases, um, you know, extremist campaigns. You, you mentioned, <clears throat> excuse me, recruitment before, and, and I believe you said that more study needs to be done, but is there any evidence even if it's scant, that there is recruitment that takes place in the chat rooms by extremist groups. Does that happen? I think we can safely say, yes, it does happen. I couldn't tell you for sure, you know, to the extent to which it happens, but yes, we have seen that it does happen. Do, do you have any idea of how that recruitment works? I mean, does, does a, a person from an extremist group identify someone in a, in a chat room and then go from the chat room to communicating directly by email or social media. And walk me through, because I'm very curious to know how that would, would work. And I guess the second part of the question would be, you know, if, if you're an extremist and you're trying to recruit someone, you, you probably have a sense of who might be more, quote unquote, vulnerable, more willing to be receptive. Anyway, a lot of, a lot of questions there, if you can take a stab at, at a few of them. Yeah, I think, you know, recruitment in gaming is probably in a way similar to recruitment in other spaces in that often recruiters spend a lot of time cultivating, you know, the people that they're trying to engage with. They might, you know, enter into a gaming space, a gaming community, and like you say, start to scope out who might be more receptive to, you know, negative, hateful speech or whatever it might be that they are trying to pitch slowly in a way to develop a relationship with somebody um, before they would just start trying to recruit them. So often recruitment, we found just in general study of, you know, radicalization and recruitment, that it's, it's a long process and a process of building up trust with the person that they're trying to engage with. Often, I think, in, you know, in the gaming environment, once that trust has been built and they've, they've seen that maybe, a, you know, a person is receptive to the ideas that they're putting forward, that they might then encourage them to move off of the gaming platform and into a more closed environment space. So there are, of course, channels, I mean, Discord and Twitch channels that are very open that you, anyone can join in them. And then there are, you know, channels that exist, uh, platforms that exist that have more closed channels uh, in which you sort of, you know, you prove your identity and, and, and are admitted into these communities. So I think often what we've seen is that as somebody is being taken down this path of recruitment, they would be approached in a more open environment and then often moved to a more closed environment as the conversation gets more intensified around, you know, the ideologies being presented. Jessica, I, you know, we're taping this episode on uh, May 18th, uh, just a handful of days after a uh, really horrific uh, shooting, mass shooting in Buffalo, New York, 
uh, which saw a self-professed white supremacist uh, kill uh, 10 people um, uh, in a, what was clearly a racially motivated uh, attack. Is there any link between the kind of extremism in gaming that you are studying and that particular attack based on what we know at this early date? Yeah, I mean, what we can speak about, what we know from, from what's already been you know, presented is that this shooter live streamed his attack on Twitch, which is the same method that was used for the Christchurch attack. Uh, and in that, uh, because he, he used the helmet camera, he sort of wrote the epitaphs on the rifle, this very much mirrors uh, sort of a first-person shooter gaming experience. And that we refer to that often as the gamification of violence. So you're taking elements of, from games, from a gaming experience, and inserting them into your uh, violent expression in a hope to sort of uh, to gamify the violence itself. So often you can see in, you know, in these communities that there are points given for how many persons of a certain race you might shoot or these elements of, of, of games and, and gaming systems being brought into uh, the violent extremist engagement. So with this particular attack, you can see that it is a sort of an example of gamification of violence and the way that he presented it and live streamed it is something that we've been you know, speaking about with the network. It's something that, that governments are concerned about as it seems to be a trend gaining some traction and has been used in previous shootings. Um, this case, you know, the, it was removed very quickly from Twitch, but it of course found its way into other parts of the internet and has been viewed hundreds of thousands of times since the attack itself happened. So that is, is definitely, it points to you know, gamification of violence with this incident. You know, so there are some commentators in the United States who this week have made the claim that the attack isn't about white supremacy and it's not about racism. It's about violence in video games. That's not what you're saying. No. No, there have been thousands of studies, I mean, going back all the way to Columbine and maybe even before that, about whether or not video games cause violence. And all of the studies agree that video games themselves do not cause violence. It's more about the ways in which certain communities that play video games can motivate people or mobilize people towards violence. So it's about the community experience and it's about that sort of encouragements of hateful or extremist ideologies and perhaps even encouragement to violence and that is perhaps what is gained out of the gaming experience it's it's not about the games themselves making people more violent so following the the mass shooting in buffalo twitch uh, i think pretty quickly took down that live stream video uh, and i have two questions that come from that one first is what responsibility do companies like Twitch have in a case like this for the outcome? I mean, it's the same sort of question of, can you blame the gun companies for selling the guns? I, I think we can see that Twitch moderated the contents or it was taken down within a space of about 40 seconds after the attack. So either that was due to the Twitch content trusting, you know, safety team taking that down in a very quick manner, or that was perhaps due to the, you know, the shooter severing the feed. I'm, I'm not exactly sure on the details of that yet, but they've certainly, um, you can see that they've addressed their internal procedure around this issue since the Christchurch attack. So they have made an effort to 
to anticipate and moderate something like this happening. However, I, I think it's clear that it will continue to happen. And that moderation of that live streaming content is a very challenging question to address. And I don't think that that means that the companies themselves are responsible for that. They are, however, responsible for thinking about that within their internal policy and being ready uh, to moderate it, I think, in a, in a responsible way. So you said earlier that that video morphed or was then seen in, in, in many other places. I'm just curious, technologically, how does that happen? You know, if, if Twitch took it down 40 seconds later, uh, there was a 40 second period, I guess, where where people somehow captured it and spread it. Talk about that because I, I think that is a critical element, which is how fast things can spread via the internet, regardless of whether it's for good, bad, or, or indifferent. Talk about that because I'm, I'm fascinated with how that could happen. Yeah, I mean, first analysis, our, you know, our analysis of, of the incident showed that only about 22 people watched it live. So there weren't very many people watching it live. Um, but in the space of 40 seconds, you can take a screen grab and you can save that content and then repost it again later in a different place. Um, so, for instance, in this case, we saw that it was still present on Reddit over a day later. Um, in that, I mean, so it's it's Twitch took it down immediately. It's no longer act, you know, it's no longer reachable through Twitch's platform. But it is can then be saved by somebody, screen grabbed by somebody, and then reposted again to other places. And you'll see that it will survive a long time in channels that are closed, where the you know platforms aren't engaging and trying to moderate the content in those closed um, chats. So it, it's retained as, as a trophy, I think, you know, in a lot of these more closed, more violent extremist environments. You know, so we're talking about, in the context of, of Buffalo anyway, someone who appears to be motivated by white supremacy uh, and, and racist ideology. Uh, so much of the extremist literature in the last several decades is really focused on the threat to pose to the West and to, and to uh, allied uh, partners around the world from Islamic extremism. Are the insights comparable? Are, do, we, do we know enough about the threat environment emanating from the right and from uh, white supremacy in the United States today? Uh, or is there more research still to be done? We've got about a minute left. Yeah, I mean, that's, it's a big question for one minute. Uh, you're right, counterterrorism and frameworks have been very focused on Islamist extremism since the 9-11 attacks and in the context of the global war on terror. That has primarily been the focus of terrorism apparatus for 20 years. But there is a lot of research that has been done on far-right extremism. I will say that, you know, we are now shifting in the terrorism research community towards more focus on other types of extremism. And I think we'll see that shift continue to happen as as global and political events evolve, ideology is, is starting to become more blurred in the online environment because you can pick from so many different you know, ideological perspectives and sort of cherry pick and put together your own narrative. It, it's become quite blurred in a lot of cases. So I think that the research does need to continue to evolve and to adapt more to other types of extremism and, and focus on how to, how to address them and moderate them and, and, and prevent and counter people getting involved with them. Well, Jessica, your work is absolutely fascinating and hugely important. She's Dr. Jessica White with the Extremism and Gaming Network. Uh, thank you so much for being with us this week. That is all the time. If you want to know more about Story in the Public Square, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter or visit PellCenter.org. 
where you can always catch up on previous episodes. For G. Wayne Miller, I'm Jim Lutis asking you to join us again next time for more Story in the Public Square.